Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January 23rd, 2014. It's a Thursday, and this is episode 1286 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a great one for you today. I've got a gal named Rebecca Colvin. She's going to be on in just a bit. We're going to talk about raising rabbits. Uh, and she really raises rabbits for the pet trade and uh, for show. But when you do that, you end up with these little guys we call coal bunnies. They're not quite up to, up to standard. And uh, she figured out that, hey, they're pretty good eating. Uh, she's she's going to talk to us mostly about meat rabbit production, but from the angle of someone who primarily raises rabbits for pet trades and 4-H and things like that. Before I bring her on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Sawtooth Tactical. All the stuff you could ever want to live that tactical lifestyle. You name it, they've got it. Uh, Maxpedition bags, Magpul magazines, the awesome titanium spork. They've got it all. Sawtac.com is their website. Next up today, Ready Made Resources, the company that does what it says it's going to do and then does it. All the resources you need, ready made, ready to go. Point, click, and buy on their website. Great pricing, great service. It's uh, a really great company, and they've been with us a very long time. I would say probably our second to third longest standing sponsor, someone who's also up in this uh, quarter for a five-year recognition along with uh, our original first sponsor, SafeCastle. Five years, guys. I mean, that's we got a lot of sponsors coming up. By the way, I've got a company uh, that's doing recognition plaques. All the rest will be sent directly to the sponsors. The first one for SafeCastle is being sent to me. I'll do a little video of it when it gets here. It's beautiful. And I just think that I need to do something to recognize sponsors that are so amazing. And I say that now just so you can think about when you're deciding who to do business with, realize the longevity and the massive support our sponsors give us with discounts for the MSB as well. Um, both of our sponsors today have discounts for you in the MSB. Um, let me give you another discount opportunity in our MSB. Um, there's a guy named Clayton Jacobs who makes a product called Soil Cube. It will do a lot for you this time of year as you're doing your starting your plants, like eliminate the need for pots because it compresses the soil into a block. You drop a seed in. Put a little dirt on top, a little divot that it makes in there, and you end up with a transplant that has no problems with the roots binding up and self-prunes its roots and builds a really healthy root system. It's a great product. Again, it's called the Soil Cube. You get uh, 20% off if you're an MSB member. On that note, please consider joining the MSB. If you do that, you'll help support my show at 18.3 cents per episode. And uh, you'll get a lot of great benefits, like all these discounts that we talk about. You'll get over $200 worth of free ebooks. Every episode of the Survival Podcast ever produced is in convenient zip files there. And I'm always working to add more stuff for you. I thought I was going to have something for you this week, um, but the person I was working with wants to put it off a bit. Um, and I have some other things that I drummed up yesterday that I need to work on. I'm going to work on something for you guys with body armor. I've talked about that before. I think I've got something that's going to work with that. Um, so I'm going to deal with that next. I had a person who I'm going to bring on probably in March now uh, with a discount on comfrey cuttings, which I know a lot of you guys are looking for comfrey. 
And uh, she's a great gal, but right now her ground's frozen. So uh, she's afraid of what will happen when we launch her as a discounter in the MSB and not being able to fill the orders until late spring. So she's going to wait till she has a good inventory up for you guys. Uh, and then we're going to do that for you. And I'm always looking to improve that. I just want to point that out once in a while. Um, and I'm looking at this point when I add people to the MSB to be something that we don't already have there. So, you know, I'm not really looking to add another general store, so to speak. We have quite a few of those that do awesome things for you back there. So I'm looking for specialized stuff. So if you know of somebody, especially a small business owner that you have access to that you think would be a good fit for the MSB, Put them in touch with me. Let them know about me. Uh, that kind of introduction usually works really, really well. Um, we have thousands of MSB members now. It is a significant source of revenue uh, for them and a significant source of savings for you guys. That's how I've presented it from day one, and it seems to be well received. Um, Remember, if you want to join the MSB, just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, and you can find out all the ways to do that there. And if you are a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, or a first responder like an EMT, a paramedic, or a firefighter, again, active duty or prior service, you do qualify for a discount. Email me with service discount in the subject line. One or two sentences tell me who you are, what you're doing, or you did if you're prior service, and I will send you back a discount uh, code to save you even more money on the MSB. And uh, remember to do that before, not after you join. Service discount on the subject line. Email goes to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Uh, that is my email for all correspondence. So if you want to get in touch with me, that's where to do it. Today's history segment, I'm going to shorten this a little bit, and I've got something I'm going to run by Alex today and see if he's interested in it that might make this shorter for the intro segment, but a hell of a lot more cool for you guys that really dig history. So I'll talk to Alex before I tell you what it is to see if he's on board with it. Anyway, the year is 1286 because it's episode 1286. And Alex's uh, uh, little segments that he has for us today, the one I'm going to choose out of them, is pouring salt in the wound of the World Trade Center. King Philip the Ninth of France, no, it's the Fourth of France. I've got to brush up on my Roman numerals, guys. King Philip the Fourth of France imposes a tax. Gee, a bureaucrat imposes a tax. What a shock! Even in 1286, yeah, we've heard a lot about taxes, haven't we? On several vital commodities. The most galling is the tax on salt, whose rate varies widely depending on the region and political considerations, uh, with a token charge given as a reward for those regions who later allied themselves with France. Smuggling of salt from lower taxed regions to higher taxed regions was rampant until the tax was finally rescinded in 19... 45 after World War II. In modern day, a similar type of smuggling occurred in the United States when Muslim terrorists funded by their operation, funded their operations by transporting cigarettes from low-taxed Virginia to higher-taxed New York and falling prey to New York taxes. Um, even when they sold cigarettes for less, they still made $22 million in profit to fund the blind sheik and the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center. Um, here's Alex's little lesson on that one. I wonder why sometimes preppers pay so little attention to salt in their prep. Salt is not just a com condiment. Salt is an important requirement for one's health. When salt levels get too low, the body collapses in extreme pain, and in some cases, death. So when government places a tax on such an important commodity as salt, it is bound to create resentment, as it did from France with salt tax. Do you know why people don't care about salt today very much? Because it's in that gun everything, whether you want it there or not. If you start looking at the ingredients of the food that most people eat, you'll find salt, 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 salt. There's also a significant sodium content in meat. So even if you're eating good, fresh quality meat, you're getting some salt. There's definitely a salt content in blood. 
Um, and then most people that eat meat tend to salt their meat, so we don't have any problems with salt deficiencies today. But at a time in history when many peasants were living on basically gruel, uh, it was very common honestly, if there wasn't some use of salt intentionally for people to become sodium deficient. And it is a problem. We think of it as a toxin. And it's one of those things that you have none, you're dead. You have too much, you're dead. There's lots of ways to be sick in the middle. But there's a very wide range of acceptable levels of salt, and, and you need it. It's also a great preservative for many types of foods. What I find interesting, though, was... In one of the interviews that I read with Selko, Selko, of course, is a survivor of the of the Balkan Wars. Um, over a year, dealing with a true shit hit the fan, like walk down the street and get shot at, shit hit the fan. Very, very short supplies of food and all. Uh, well, somebody asked him, was there any value in barter of salt? And he said, a little, not much. People were more interested in coffee and chocolate. Um, if that went on longer, that may have changed. But I think that one of the things you have to understand about salt and its value as a preservative uh, of food, it will only have value as a preservative of food if, fill in the blank, guys, there's food to preserve. So when food is really in short supply, including fresh produced food and things like that, off-the-land food and stuff like that, salt is going to have a very low value because you can only eat so much of it straight. And you're only going to eat so much of it straight. Nobody sits down to a plate of salt. right? That's how I've always described. What's that actor's name, the little annoying guy? Oh, David Spade. right? David Spade. Uh, until I saw that movie where he played a kid where he actually was in the whole movie, and it was a hilarious movie, Dickie, Dickie Roberts, right? Until I saw that, I always said that David Spade was like salt. He was good in a TV show or a movie as like an adjunct, right? He was like in it in little parts of it, but like if you had to tolerate him for the whole thing, you'd want to like smash your eyes out with a pool cue or something. Um, he proved me wrong with that movie. I mean, by the way, if you want a funny movie, to watch with your kids. There's a few adultish things in it, but, you know, kids in their, you know, 10 and older, no problem. It's up to you otherwise. I mean, I, I wouldn't really worry. I think if my kid was eight again, I'd watch that with him, uh, with no concerns. But Dickie Roberts is a freaking hilarious movie to maybe have a movie night with your kids and maybe want to add to a digital format or a DVD for grid down scenarios when you're on low power to watch something to, uh, put some humor in it. You know, before I bring Rebecca on, it's not a super long interview. That just makes me think maybe we have a little uh, little segment here on the importance of entertainment and happiness and joy and family life, um, and we make sure that you know prepping enhances that, not that it gets in the way of it. Um, sometimes when I talk about things that are kind of happy. A little too happy for some people. I hear like, we need to be more serious about this. There's real dangers and all. Well, of course there is. But I don't know about you, but I have a seminal moment in my life. And most people do. They have certain things. You know, I have many of them, I guess you would say. But there are certain ones that really spring to mind. And what I think about is a commander that I served under the, in the Army who told us one day, actually he told us this as he was leaving his command, and I hadn't been uh, under his command for very long. Uh, I really didn't even know him because it was kind of like I got transferred into this unit, and like three weeks later he's on his way out. And I guess he wasn't looking to really make a lot of relationships with people on his way out, and that's part of the military. When you're on your way out, you kind of pull back, uh, especially from forming new relationships. Um, 
Because a commander, even a, even a private or a, a corporal, you know, would usually make a little bit of effort when a new guy comes in the unit to spend a little bit of time talking to him. And I really never talked to this guy at all. But he was one of the most amazing officers that I ever served under, uh, but I didn't realize it until the day he left. He told us a story. He said, men, one day all of you will die. Most of you will not die in combat. You'll die old men. But I want you to think about that now as you're doing your duty. Because when you die, they'll lay you in the ground or they'll put you in an urn if you're cremated or something like that. Most of you will go somewhere where there will be a name, your name. There will be a saying, and that saying will say something about you. Sometimes you don't have any saying. But something that almost everybody will always have when they're laid to rest is going to be some numbers. The number is the, day, is the date that you were born, and followed by the number that's the date that you died. In the middle, between those two numbers, is a hyphen. That hyphen is you. Make it count for something. And at 1920, I don't remember how old I was when I was in that unit, it meant a lot, and it made a big impact on me. But today, what I want that hyphen to mean when I'm gone is a lot more important and a lot broader and a lot deeper than when I was a hard-charging 19-year-old that thought I was made out of you know bricks and sticks and would never give up. You know, I thought I would live on forever and be this ultimate, you know, fighter someday or God knows what else was in your head when you're in the military and the airborne, you know, at that age. You just think you're, you know, that's how you're trained to be. Now, as I reflect, I have a son in his 20s and I have an audience of thousands and thousands of people. What I want that hyphen to be when I'm gone is to live on in things that people are actually doing to better themselves and their families, to be more resilient, to be more self-reliant, to be more self-determined. That's what I want that hyphen to be. And if we don't occasionally take time to say, how can we enjoy life, then then your hyphen is not really as, as important as it could be. When you're gone, your kids won't remember how serious you were and how determined you were, except for where it got them through something. In all other times, they'll remember when you did something that was awesome with each other. And sometimes awesome is turning all the crap off, watching a movie together or playing a game together or taking a walk together or maybe raising animals together. And on that, I want to uh, bring our special guest on now. Uh, Rebecca Colvin, she's been uh, raising show rabbits for 17 years and just began uh, utilizing the coal bunnies for consumption. She's an awesome lady. She's agreed to join us today and talk about rabbit breeding. And with that, hey, Rebecca, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here today. Hey, we've got you on to talk about raising rabbits, and uh, I always try to kind of connect the audience with the guest right up in the front, kind of, you know, could you give us a little bit about your story of how you ended up, you know, where you are now? I imagine if you're raising rabbits, you might be doing some other stuff that's kind of homesteadish or what have you. Um, was it something you always did as a kid, or did you take kind of like many of our guests take a crooked path that ended up here or what have you? I definitely took a crooked path. Um, when I was 13 years old, my mom finally had enough money to buy a house. 
And part of the luxury of owning a house was that I got to have pets. So I, my mom being the wonderful mother that she was, wouldn't let me just get anything. And I had to go to the library and get some books out and write a report on animals that I was thinking about having. And I picked out a few different books and whatnot because I've always, always loved animals. And I saw a book about rabbits. And I went, oh, well, that could be cool. So I wrote a three-page report on rabbits. And after many, many, many drafts, she felt that I was ready. And I made the mistake that everybody makes when they first start doing something. I went out and I bought the first rabbit I saw, which was a $75 (laughs) mistake. Okay. What, What made it a mistake? Oh, so... She, I found out that they actually have rabbit shows. I never knew this before because it's a, it's a bunny who has a rabbit show. Um, and I got this rabbit from a breeder who she was the first person I called and I should have talked to more people and gone to some shows and found some reputable breeders, but I was in a rush and she didn't meet the standard at all. And I didn't know any better. You know, she was long in the shoulder. She had actually a genetic disqualification that she passed on to all of her offspring. And granted, I mean, it it was a disqualification called moon eye, where the third eyelid um, becomes paralyzed and just like seeps out over the eye. It's kind of weird looking. It's not actually like doesn't harm the rabbit in any way, but it looks unsightly. I got you. So... I ended up feeding her to a snake and um, buying new rabbits um, from much more reputable people, people who I'm still friends with 17 years later. And, you know, they still help me out. I still help them out. We trade rabbits. We occasionally purchase them from each other, you know, things like that. And here I am today raising rabbits still. So, I mean, when someone's thinking about raising rabbits, specifically if they're thinking about meat rabbits, uh, mm-hmm. which a lot of our audience is, you know, what, what should they really start? Where should they start out with? I mean, obviously, from what you just said, finding reputable breeders and going to shows is one good way to get information. But what are some other things they have to think about? Um, some other really good resources for finding the rabbits you're looking for is the American Rabbit Breeders Association. They have a list of breeders that you can call, email, talk to. They have websites. There's national um, breed clubs that you can contact. Um, when it comes to meat breeds, you got to find the breed that works for you. There's a ton of them out there. You know, I mean, there's Californians, New Zealand, Rex rabbits, to name just three out of the 48 breeds that there are that are specific for meat and the Rex for meat and fur. Um, And I would really say shows are the best place to go because there's more than one breeder there. And a lot of times majority of the breeds are represented so you can see everything and there's judges there who aren't going to sugarcoat anything for you. If you looking at a rabbit and want to buy it and want to know, hey, is this a good animal? You can take it up to a judging table and say, tell me more about this animal. And they'll go over it for you, you know, in a, in a spare five minutes they have and say, eh, good animal, you know, maybe a fault here or there. You know, you can improve it with this or that. Or I would spend your money elsewhere. 
Gotcha. Um, you breed mini rex, which my understanding is those are primarily a a pet rabbit. Um, mini kind of uh, giving you the connotation they're a relatively small animal. Uh, but you also have animals that you cull and you use those as meat rabbits. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say that the mini rex is actually a good meat rabbit? Or it makes sense as a a meat source if you're doing other things. What there might be a better breed for the person that's a dedicated meat rabbit breeder. There is a better breed for the dedicated meat person. the The reason I started raising mini rex is because they're small, so you can have a lot of them in a small space. Whereas the bigger your animal gets, the bigger space you need to keep them. Um, my guys, I actually when we call them, and I know. At you know, sometimes as early as four weeks or so, I'm not keeping you. Um, I will at six weeks put them into a pen with each other and just free feed them to oblivion with the please eat, 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 eat. And I mean, you can grow them up pretty big, pretty fast, but not at all like a meat rabbit. I have a friend who's going to give me um, a rare breed called Champagne D'Argent. She doesn't want them anymore, and um, they're a meat rabbit. They, she has some that were born in December and they're the size of a full grown mini rex already. So they're already four and a half pounds. Oh, wow. Yeah. And how and, old are they? Um, they're about eight weeks. Eight weeks. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's kind of a, a huge difference. You know, mine don't reach that. Well, we don't really want them to reach four and a half pounds. Um, but, you know, they don't reach that four pound mark until like six months old. And by the time you're six months old, you're old and stringy and chewy and not delicious and wonderful. <laughs> yeah. What would you what would you say maybe the the best breeds are to look at as as a meat rabbit? Um, uh, and maybe even if you could throw in a little information about maybe rabbits that are more adaptable to different climates. I don't know if you can go that specific, but like, obviously I have real concerns down here of keeping my rabbits cool and dealing with heat stress where somebody in New Hampshire might be worried more about the winter. Um, I would say you're, you'll, it would be easiest for you to find either the Californians or the New Zealand whites. They're raised everywhere for meat. They're hardy. They're fantastic animals from the people I've talked to about them. Um, and I've seen, I mean, and they get big, like nine pounds at adulthood. So by the time you're calling them, which is usually between 12 and 16 weeks for meat, you have a really sizable animal. Um, as for demographic, well, not demographic, um, as for like your location and a rabbit, I would say you don't want to be raising an Angora in hot weather, but then again, if you're raising for meat, you're not raising Angoras, so you're okay. Um, But all rabbits are very sensitive to heat. Um, There's a lot of things you can do for them. I mean, this last summer up where I am, um, we had quite a few days of, you know, triple-digit weather, and rabbits do not like that at all. Um, I had fans going. I had misters going, and... We have uh, milk jugs with frozen water in it for just in case we don't have water and we need to have water to drink. Yeah. Um, they became the rabbit frozen water bottles, yep. um, which yeah, we, some we of them, sorry, some of them love. Um, and other ones, it was like they were terrified of the bottle. <laughs> I'm like, curl up next to it. It will keep you cold. Yeah. 
Yeah, we actually did uh, the water bottle thing with some of our pastured poultry this year. Um, and you'd go out there, and several of them would have their butts right up against it, you know, and other ones just didn't seem to comprehend it. Um, so I know that does, you know, provide some abatement. Uh, it makes me think that, you know, I, I want to get into, like, setting this up. And one of the great things is you can set them up in hutches and use small areas and all. But Paul Wheaton's always been on this kick. Of course, it's one of those things he's on a kick about that he's never actually done, about, you know, using large confined areas and raising them in colonies. Because uh, then they could go in a hole in the ground. And that does kind of make sense because that's what they would do in the wild. Um, you know, we have a lot of wild rabbits around here, and they don't seem to really care about the heat because they're in a hole in the ground. But I don't know how practical that really is. He has some very impractical, cool ideas. Um, but on that note, like, for people that want to do this in the conventional proven way, um, how would you set up uh, your, you know, your operation, your rabbit barn or what have you? Um, I would I would strongly advise people not to reinvent the wheel. Okay. Um just because why waste your effort and your your just your time on that? There are several very good companies out there that make cages. They'll ship you flat. You just pop them together and you're done. Okay. Um, I actually just I spent my last um, ten days on uh, PTO and instead of going somewhere really wonderful and having a super relaxing vacation, my fiance and I um, tore all the bottoms off of all of my cages. And redid everything, and then we got the um, L brackets, hung everything up, put the corrugated um, that roofing corrugated material, cut it to size, stuck them in on a slant, so I don't have trays to clean anymore. Which you know I have to spend shavings to line, and then it's time to you know clean it and all that other stuff. So now all of my you know, waste material just runs out the back mm. and, you know, we just clean it all up and throw it in our flower beds. And here's the best part. You can put it directly on anything you want to grow. Yeah, I'm glad you said it because it makes me ask you a question. I've never raised rabbits and I know that rabbit manure is great fertilizer and it's what you would call a cool manure. I don't have to um, compost it. But what I've heard in the comments from quite a few people is that, like, you have to think about where their waste goes because rabbit urine is, like, highly corrosive or something like this? Oh, it is. It it can peel the paint off the walls. Okay, um, you so definitely, how do we deal with it? I, I have always just it kind of just dealt with it. I mean, I've, I've actually had it corrode through my metal trays before. It's mm. so caustic. Um, a lot of times it's not so much of a problem so long as you don't, Put your cages like right up against your house where it's going to peel the paint off of your house. Um, putting a simple piece of plastic behind to help, you know, get it to go in the direction you want it to go. But okay. I just have it run onto the ground and okay. it kills the grass that's right there, but that's okay. I'm not worried about growing grass at the particular location. And, you know, on the flip side, I always joke that. Whenever, wherever you have rabbit manure, it's, um, if you build it, they will come. You get more worms than anywhere else I've ever seen. I mean, I don't know how they sniff it out, but they do, and they come in hordes to wherever that. So, I mean, the urine must not bother them too much um, because they're always there. It's yeah. amazing. 
I mean, what kind of confused me about that is I know that some homesteaders, and I know Sal, Joel Salton does this, they have their rabbits set up where the rabbits, you know, drop their, their feces and their urine onto straw or what have you, and they actually let chickens range underneath there, which, you know, they'll, they'll eat some of the manure, but they'll also end up eating bugs and things that come around. And I just didn't know if there was, like, any issue then because of the urine, if it's only really, like, a problem on, like, metal or paint or something like that, if it's not really a problem for other animals or anything, I guess, then? Um, no, I've actually had chickens before. I unfortunately lost them to raccoons. Um, and my chickens loved every single time I let them into um, the barn because uh, there's fly larvae in the poop. And okay. so they dig through it, and they help to spread it around so it doesn't pile up and get all kind of gooky. And you know, go through it and pick out a little fly larva and they eat the worms. And I mean, every single time I open the door to the barn, but they would come just screaming from across the yard. Ooh, we're going in, you know? Yeah. And so they did fine with it. I actually had a couple of rabbits get peed or not rabbits, uh, chickens get peed on a couple of times and it, it, water off a duck's back. They were like, okay. Oh, whatever. That was my concern. That is it, is it harmful to other animals or what have you? And it seems like it's just a re it's more of a reactive uh, the corrosiveness than just like it's yeah. not like they're peeing. I, I just never heard of that until a couple months ago. You know, like what are they peeing acid or what? You know, sometimes um, so, it seems that way, but it's mostly just over time it starts to corrode through things. Um, and a fun little note: um, this will terrify a lot of people, but some rabbits actually pee red. They don't have a kidney problem. They just have an excessive amount of calcium that they're letting go in their urine. So if you ever see that, don't freak out. It's totally normal. Okay, yeah, peeing red is something that no person wants to do, but apparently it's okay for rabbits. Um, moving into another thing, there's this, you know, it, they breed like rabbits is the is the kind of the, the saying. And one of the attractions to rabbits is that they are highly reproductive. Uh, they have rather large liver uh, livers, rather, rather large litters per per litter. Um, you can have a couple, three does in a buck, and produce a lot of meat a year. But is it always that simple? They just you know breed. Is there any kind of tricks or techniques to make sure you get a good breeding? And I, I do know there's certain things you shouldn't do when it comes to breeding. Like you know you shouldn't, from my understanding, take the uh, to the buck into the does hutch. Oh, definitely don't do that. That's a good but way to get your... She might do something that will prevent breeding in the future. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, rabbits aren't really mean, but they're very territorial, and does always go to the buck cage. Now, I can tell you from personal experience, breeding like rabbits isn't always what happens. You, I mean, occasionally you have just, for whatever reason, you can't get a single doe bred, it's, you know, a lot of times when the days get shorter, they don't really go into season as much. Um, they don't want to. They're just cranky sometimes. Um, sometimes you get poor-sized litters. There's a lot of things you can do to fix those. Um, the I don't want to breed doe, um, putting a light up in there and extending your daylight hours for just a few hours um, or switching your doe and your buck and just trading their cages. So they're not in with each other, but they're in each other's cages. The smell of the buck everywhere now, it can be, you know, very lovely to the doe and help get her feeling in the mood. Um, and then with your poor litter sizes, 
one of the um, rabbits are induced ovulators. So the act of breeding is what causes them to ovulate. Okay. And they did this study that it takes about an hour for the eggs to make it down the little fallopian tubes and into the uterus. Um, So now if you bred a, so you bred an hour ago and your hour old sperm is now what's there to fertilize these eggs. So if you actually breed again on that hour, it's been proven you can double your litter sizes. And I know that from me, I, from personal experience, I have actually doubled my litter sizes. Sometimes up to, I had one doe once have 12 babies, which was a problem because you only have eight nipples. So how are you supposed to feed the extra four? And uh, that's actually another very good point is that it's very good to breed more than one doe at a time because if you have a problem with one of your litters, you can foster to another animal and you don't lose babies. Gotcha. Gotcha. So um, what do you think maybe the biggest mistakes people make are? Um, definitely the one that I did, which was go out and buy the first rabbit you see. Don't do that. Um, the other ones are not really thinking out their location for where to put their rabbits. Um, you know, you want you want a really nicely ventilated area. You know, if if you see flies, you need more ventilation because flies don't like a, a breeze. So you want to put them in a good spot, no direct sunlight. Rabbits hate that. Um, well, I mean, they do like to sunbathe, but, you know, direct sunlight can lead to too much heat, and that's never good. Um, I've seen a lot of people do the whole, oh, I want to raise rabbits, and I want to show them, or I want to raise them for me, and they get attached, and then they can't raise them for what they want to do because they want to keep every single one, and it's now their baby, and they don't want to eat it or get rid of one or cull anything. Um, things like that, you know, calling, I would have to say calling's hard and sometimes you feel bad doing it. I've had to call older animals who have been really good animals for me and I'm like, oh, now I have to get rid of you. But the important part to remember, and especially, and I tell people who go, oh, you raised bunnies, that's so cute. And I'm like, yeah, you can't eat cute, you eat meat. And that's what they are. They're not a pet. They're livestock. And you've got to make sure you remember that and you don't let your emotions get in there when you're selecting your animals, when you're figuring out which ones you want to keep and things like that. Yeah, I think that that might be harder for people that are doing a mixed batch type of thing, like some of these are pets and some of these are meat. And you, you, you kind of overlap the two in your head if you're not careful. Whereas I think the dedicated meat breeder... Like, you know, you can name them if you want to, but like Stu and Haas and Pfeffer and... Exactly. <laughs> I, I've heard some people say that some of these meat breeds, and when they, I guess they, you know, handle their, their, their rabbits from a standpoint of, the, you know, they're not pets, that they're not actually the nicest critters in the world, and it's not as hard as you would think to, uh, to slaughter. There is that. Um, one thing, I have a rule in my barn... Um, if you bite me and you're not pregnant or with babies, you're dinner. Okay. Because 
I don't have time to have my hand bitten off by somebody. Um, and it, it hurts. I mean, you'd be surprised. It hurts. Um, but I mean, I make allowances for a pregnant doe. Obviously, you're feeling a little hormonal, and that's okay. And you know, or a doe with babies, you're feeling protective. Yeah. And for the most part, I mean, a lot of people, I've had people say, oh, well, it's a really nice animal. Mm. Well, that's nice. Yeah. But you can't touch it because every time you open the door, she comes running at you with her teeth bared. I well, mean, and the other the other side of that is since you are breeding for the pet trade as well as for me, you want those genetics the hell out of your lines. Oh yeah, um, and I mean even um, even with my meat rabbits that we're getting into, I won't stand for a bad attitude just because I might have to handle you one day. And how am I supposed to do that? I mean, I had a I had a a winning show rabbit who would not calm down. And she came at me one day, teeth bared, and I said, that's it. You're done. I don't care how good you are. <laughs> I don't have time for that. So, and I mean, it's an, it, it's a pleasure to raise animals with good attitudes because there's, I'm, I don't know if you've ever had that one animal that you're just like, why do I keep you around? I've got <laughs> one right now, but it's not because she's mean. It's because she's useless and annoying. <laughs> I've got a Thaomi chicken that doesn't want anything to do with the rest of the flock because she won't let them breed. The rooster just beats her up. Um, she's a, like you walk in the coop and she screams at you this horrible cackling scream. Oh. And the only reason she hasn't turned into soup yet is they're such a small bird. I mean, you know, it's like a big dove breast by the time you're done with it. And. <laughs> Honestly, they weren't a very good meat chicken either. I did have some uh, family cockerels that I slaughtered, and it was just like, yeah, they were chicken, but they really weren't great chicken. And it's like, do I kill this bird? Do I try to find somebody that wants a psycho chicken? You know, she does lay eggs, you know, and maybe in a different flock she'd be happier. But, um, yeah, you can just tell. There's, I have two of them. You can tell which one she is from a, a long way off because she's, she's not as big. Mm-hmm. She's got her feathers tattered up a little bit because the rooster beats on her. And, you know, it's like, what do I do with this stupid bird? Yeah. And if if she weighed a pound more, she'd be soup by now. I uh, Yep. I've I've had that rabbit. I think I've also had, had that rabbit. chicken. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know that one that you're like, I actually I had a buck who just wouldn't grow. And I'm like, yeah. you're nice, but you weigh like two pounds. And that's not an acceptable weight. And I don't know what to do with you you need to eat and you're not growing and i just finally said you're a waste of cage space that i need for somebody else you're out yeah, um, yeah i've thought about feeding this chicken to the dog there you go <laughs> my dogs beg when we're butchering rabbits and it's like go away you're no i know um marjorie uh when she wildcraft from uh becker food Brothers, when she butchers her mm-hmm. rabbits like, all of the entrails that she doesn't use as a food source, she feeds the dogs. And any waste part from the rabbit, she feeds the dogs. And she, what she pointed out was, if the dogs weren't there to eat that, I'd have to deal with it. Oh, that's true. So we I keep do- thinking about doing it, but um, my fiancé saves me from having to actually butcher them and does them oh. for me, which is wonderful. I can do it. It's it's just that when you pull out their guts, they make noises. and It's kind of creepy. <laughs> Yeah, I've always actually found them very easy to dress. 
Um, I've never really worked much with domestic rabbits, but as a hunter, I've shot a lot of cottontails. And I could dead near skin and gut a rabbit without a knife. I choose not to, but I could. Um, where, you know, you spend a day butchering a half a dozen or two dozen chickens, you're, you're spending some time. So I've actually found them much easier to process. We, so we started, um, butchering them for meat about a year ago and we read a lot of books and didn't know exactly what we were doing. So we looked up a video on YouTube, um, and watched it a couple of times and went, okay, let's give it a try. And it was shocking to both of us how quickly it went from little bunny rabbit to hunk of meat. And I mean, even I'm like just still amazed by bunny rabbit dinner done. And I mean, it's so easy. You get through them so fast. I mean, we usually do about five at a time um, just because after five, you're kind of tired, um, especially after we've worked all day. So, you know, we'll do five at a time and He'll dress them and then I'll take the parts apart for, you know, legs in here and loins in there and other little bits and pieces in this bag. And, you know, we'll freeze them and save them. Or um, my favorite is uh, he does this fabulous crock pot recipe where he just throws a bunch of stuff in the crock pot. And when we come home, it's dinner time and it smells so good. (laughs) I've always enjoyed actually fried rabbit. Um, little cornmeal, little mm. bacon grease, brown them up. And then the thing is, you do need to kind of cook them a little bit longer than you maybe would chicken, so like a pan fry, and then finish them in the oven on like a low temperature to tender them up. Man, that is that is some good food right there. Um, it, it, you know, it's one of those things, like I'm actually considering adding rabbits to what we're doing here, but... You can only do so many things before you kind of hit a point where, like, it's too much. So you have to kind of balance yeah. those things out. Yeah, and chickens pretty much, they take care of themselves. You, when we're pasturing them, you move them once a day, and, you know, they're on their own until it's time to butcher them. And we got some good weight off our uh, freedom rangers. We, ju- we just butchered the last six. Our largest bird dressed out at 9.7 pounds. Ooh, nice. It's like a tiny turkey. Yeah, that yeah. is a tiny turkey. Good but, job. Uh, yeah, rabbit. The, the the I've heard a lot of people. You know, always people say it tastes like chicken. It tastes frog tastes like chicken. Rabbit tastes like chicken. Squirrel. Rabbit tastes like rabbit. It's it's that it's the most similar thing I could tell a person that's never had rabbit that it would be like is chicken. But it it's if you gave me a piece of rabbit, I would know it's not chicken. Oh yeah. Um, it's wonderful though. It, the oh. quality of rabbit meat is just awesome. It is. My uh, my three step kids call it chicken plus, uh, uh, but only because the statement was made early on. Well, I could never eat one of your bunnies. And we went, well, that's unfortunate because you already have, but we'll just keep that to ourselves because <laughs> we want you to eat. So um, but even um, all of my family now calls it chicken plus because the best way that I've ever described it to somebody who hasn't had it is it tastes like chicken, only so much better than chicken. Um, and they don't get, I mean, even one of my, you know, diehard, you know, bunnies or pets coworkers, I had her try a piece and she was like, oh my God, my pet rabbit tastes like this. And I was like, well, he's like four years old, so he probably doesn't taste this good anymore, Yeah, but he could. Now uh, that's something I've really never thought about. So anybody that's breeding animals, sooner or later you get a, a breeder to a point where 
they've, they've kind of run their cycle, so to speak, and then they're done. They're not going to breed well for you anymore, and then it's time for that you know animal to, to be culled out. With chickens, it's easy. It's a stew bird. It's a soup bird. It's, you know, it's an old, they call it a stewing hen. Um, I never really thought about rabbits actually kind of toughen up a lot more than an older chicken will. Um, especially you're not a four year old rabbit. So is there any food value to an old rabbit? I haven't eaten an old one yet. Um, I imagine you could probably stew it and make stock out of it. Um, I'm generally with my older stuff. You usually get between one and I'd say at most four years out of an animal. Um, that's like, you know, your really good production time, you know, big litters, good litter weights and things like that. After that time, there's a lot of 4-H groups, kids looking for project animals. You know, you mm-hmm. can take them to a show and raffle them. You know, give them you – know, after that age, they're not worthless. They're just not what you need anymore. Got you. And, Got you know, you. instead of wasting it and just killing it and, you know, basically throwing it away or, you know, or you could give it to your dog, you know, either yeah. one. Um, <laughs> but I I call it recycling um, because sure. every time I – have to dispatch an animal that I'm not going to eat. I um, I have friends with large reptiles mm-hmm. that are hungry on occasion, and so, you know, I'll give it to them. Or I have friends with large cats um, that, you know, they use it for enrichment for the cats. Sure. Um, and things like that. So I, I really, truly hate having to throw out an animal. Just yeah, and it makes sense that some of these kids would want them. And a lot of times I would imagine these animals that are no longer – a good breeder for a production breeder will still breed and might produce a small litter for a project or something like that. Oh, yeah. Okay. And if you're breeding good genetics, that might be a highly valued thing to a young person that's getting started. Exactly. You can definitely give back to your community um, and, you know, pass along that good animal that's just not what you need anymore. And then there's people that just want a pet, so, you know, kind of of like being put out to pasture, you know, retirement, Exactly. Get a good job. You made me lots of babies. Um, you know, if we can avoid uh, if we can avoid the chopping block for you, we will. That, that's that's kind of a cool use. Now you mentioned something about friends with reptiles. I notice here um, on your bio that you have a lot of people who keep big snakes, but you own a little uh, little hognose snake. I do. I own a little western hognose. They're Sweet. cool little animals. I'm kind of a, a herpetologist enthusiast myself. Um, at one time, I actually had about 60 snakes. Oh, awesome. Uh, I now have none. Um, I rehomed most of them. Some of them actually... There's a guy, you may have seen him on like Discovery, named Donald Sutherland. Uh, he had a reality series for a while where he would go through different parts of Africa collecting snakes, and I actually had about a dozen African house snakes that he actually field collected. Um, oh. in South Africa in, in the Bushveld, um, which was kind of a really unique thing, but um, they're not really a good meat animal. <laughs> so yeah, point where, like, it's something I like, but they're not something that, you know, when you move into a homestead environment, you start to, like, ask yourself, like, does this animal do anything for us? It's not yeah. all got to be one-sided. But you start asking that question, like even the dogs provide a level of security and waste elimination and things like that. Um, I am thinking about going back into that world and getting like one really cool animal. 
Um, but it's the what and, you know, does it lead me back into my addiction to snakes? Because that, <laughs> that went kind of way too far last time. It is a tough addiction to break. I, I do know I used to have a lot more reptiles than I do now. Um, and my fiance is not crazy about the snake, but she's my little girl, and I got her as a hatchling 10 years ago. And so she she gets to live out the rest of her days with us. But she is a pig, and she is quite the little snot as well. Um, anything that moves is food unless it's actually moving when she's trying to eat it, and then it's not food. I I trained her to eat frozen thawed mice okay. because it's convenient to have a pack of frozen mice in your freezer to feed your snake. Absolutely. Yeah, I used to get Christmas cards from Rodent Pro. Yes. Um, <laughs> I understand. Now, they're a cool little snake, and they do their bluffing and all. I don't know if you ever saw. There's a picture thread somewhere online I saw years ago of a guy that was bit by his hog nose. Um as a feeding response bite. So the snake thought it had food, so it it latched on. And instead of getting it off, he sat there and took pictures of it. Yeah. Um, and the way his hand swelled up was pretty gnarly. They they do have a little bit of that toxin in their rear fangs there. And from yeah. what I understand, it can be uncomfortable, but not life-threatening. No, it wasn't life-threatening. But this dude's hand uh, probably twice the size. Now, the other thing is, for anybody that you know thinks like they're dangerous or something, this... This doorknob um, allowed this snake to chew on his hand for about two minutes. Yeah. Um, we finally decided I need to do something. I think, if I remember right, he like filled his sink up with water and put his hand under water with it on it, and it, it released. So he probably would have had nowhere near that level of reaction. But uh, they're cool snakes. Have you seen the tricolor hog noses? Yes. Um, mine is actually a heterozygous for albino. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I originally bought two. Um, and they went to live with a friend of mine who um, burmated them, which is that period where they go pretty inactive yep. um, during the winter. Um, well, Hetty, the female that I have here, she woke up early from her burmation and ate her boyfriend. Oh. <laughs> which, it's amazing she's still alive because generally, as a snake, when you eat something that's the same size as you, you don't live. Yeah. Um, but we've... We've always wanted to breed her because she is heterozygous for albino, but we were always concerned that she would just eat any other snake we put in there with her. So we were like, well, that's an expensive meal, so maybe we'll pass. Yeah. Um, and she's a pretty good size one. I She's uh, she's over two feet. Which that's big for a hog. Yeah. It is. Um, and when it has to do with such her, I mean, she's always hungry. And I had the brilliant idea one day of, well, I have some babies that aren't going to make it, and they're, you know, still in the nest box, eyes closed. I'll give her these guys and, you know, recycling. Um, she wouldn't eat them. Really? Because one of them moved when she touched it. Huh. And I'm like, you are the worst snake in the entire world. <laughs> and yet you still have her. And you know, just her. just a real quick note. The reason we're talking about this at all is there's probably people out there um, who have kids that that want some level of a pet. And I have to say, in my experience, something like a little hog nose or a corn snake or uh, various rat snakes or something like that are wonderful pets for kids because they're very forgiving to things like, I didn't feed it today. 
um, and, and what have you. As long as you keep the temperatures okay for it, uh, they're they're pretty easy. And I know a lot of people have fear of reptiles, but you know if you've got a small house or something, you don't have room for dogs and cats. They're a great pet for a kid, and you know don't go get them Burmese pythons or something like that. You'd, bad idea, you know. But uh, a lot of these little cool bird snakes and stuff like that, they're great pets for kids, and it gets kids engaged with the whole concept of animal husbandry. Which, if you have future eye on homesteading for yourself or your family, that's a good entry point. Oh, for sure. Um, oh, I thought you were going to say something. Sorry. <laughs> I was waiting on you there. No, um, we're kind of bringing it back around here at the end. What are you know for the person that's a little bit apprehensive at starting the rabbit breeding thing about whether or not they're up to it? You know, can you give them maybe an idea of you know? Maybe it really ain't as hard as they think, or, uh, you know, is there an exit point? Like, if you get yourself a couple does and, and a buck and it's not working out, you can probably find someplace else for them to go anyway. Oh, for sure. There's always somebody looking for a proven trio of rabbits. Um, so, I mean, if you get into it and go, oh, this is not for me, you can easily get rid of them. Um, I'd say a lot of people can be a little apprehensive about starting to, to breed any animal, really, but rabbits have been doing their rabbit thing for thousands of years and they thrive at being left alone. I mean, you feed and water and then let them be rabbits. Just let them go. And they do great. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of other things. I mean, with your rabbits, I mean, there's a lot of people who they do the whole, here's my cage, here's my food dish, here's my water bottle, and that's all you have to do with them. They, I mean, you've got to check on that water, you know, a couple times a day because a four and a four point four pound rabbit will drink the same amount of water as a twenty two pound dog. Oh, wow. um, so yeah, they drink a lot of water. So I mean, a lot of times I say you put a, throw up a couple water bottles on there. If one runs out, you got your backup, and your whole, you know, two is one, one is none. Yep. So you're golden, and you. If you run out of water, you can get heat stroke, um, you know, heat exhaustion, poor litter sizes, poor growth. So this is what I would advise on that. I would set up something like a a 50 gallon or a 30 gallon water drum, Mm -hmm. and I would run PVC along your cage line, and then I would tap into that PVC with what they call a chicken nipple. And you'd have self-refilling watering so that, you know, if you keep that tap, so that, that top barrel topped up, everybody's going to have water all the time. Exactly. Um, I also, I have an automatic watering system. Mine's made out of a small flexible thing, but I'm going to be moving to the PVC because I, where I live now, it, the, my water lines froze this winter, mm-hmm. which turned into me going, oh, crap, I have to put water bottles on every single cage. And then I went, well, I don't have enough water bottles for every single cage. So now I'm using every single bowl I have not only in my barn, but in the house. And so that led to some rabbits drinking out of Campbell's soup bowls. Um, <laughs> they were grateful for the bowl. and Yeah, yeah. And it worked. Um, but, yeah, the freezing thing, it sucks. Using that rigid PVC piping um, helps you can run a – they have a, a heat cable you can run through there yeah. to help keep it warm. Um, and so you don't have that freezing problem, which what we, what we will be doing this next uh, summer – yeah, you get a new appreciation for the annoyance of frozen water when you have animals dependent on you. Oh, like, yeah. In the past, if, like, a, a, your hose bib froze up, as long as it didn't burst, 
I don't care. Water comes out inside the house. Uh, you know, and then also you have a flock of birds and you, they want water and the stock tanks are frozen solid. We had some days we got down to, uh, like nine degrees during this ice storm we had in November, uh, which is crazy for here, but it didn't go above freezing for four straight days. A couple days we had highs in the low twenties and we had, you know, 50 gallon stock tanks frozen solid top to bottom, giant ice cube. Yeah. Uh, all, everything frozen everywhere. Uh, except our ponds that we have recirculating pumps in, and we were hauling water to the animals. So that's, I, I think, with the, the mistake, that's another thing I think that um, people need to think about when they're dealing with water systems for animals. Um, you know, most people get into a new animal in springtime, and it's great. You, don't, you all you worry about is heat in the summer, and, you you know, all of a sudden you're into to, to fall and winter, and stuff freezes up, and you're like, this is no fun. Oh yeah. I mean, I hate, I hate winter time with my rabbits just because it, it never fails. That's the day that somebody chews on their water line, somehow manages to, to be able to reach it, even though I have them all spaced out far enough away that little noses can't get to them. But something happens, they're able to reach it, they chew a hole in it. So now my hands are freezing cold, they're wet, and I'm trying to fix this stupid water line in the, you know, freezing cold outside, and I'll, I'll just be out there Stupid rabbits. Yeah, yes, that's what I'm thinking. Like a water system built on a one and a half inch piece of PVC pipe, and you rabbit that. Go ahead, get. <laughs> I yeah, know they can bite, that. but that's gonna. And if they do, if they do kill a nipple off on you, if they manage to chew a nipple uh, and, and cause that to leak, that's a real simple. Pull it out, shove another one in. Um, so yeah, that if I do this, that that might be the way I go. Um, uh, last thought before we wrap up here. You actually make some money on this, right? Oh, no, not even a little bit. I wish. No? Um, it's a fantastic hobby. I I mean, the money that we end up making is saving money on buying meat to eat, basically. Okay. Um, I, I sell my, my showable rabbits to other people who are looking for them. I keep my ones that aren't showable and eat those. Um, then I keep my best ones for myself, obviously, and continue the breed. Um, with my, uh, meat rabbits, I'm going to be getting from my friends here shortly. They will have larger litter sizes and you can actually, there are many places that will buy rabbit meat because it's hard to get. Um, yeah, it is. There's, there is a place out here that has, um, a, a 200 hole meat barn. Um, they're actually who I buy my cage stock from, um, and they, I know they make money off of it, um, and are able to, you know, sell their rabbits for meat because they have way more than they could ever use themselves. And I know, um, I believe the last issue of American Rabbit Breeders Association magazine I got, they listed current market prices for the meat and, you know, it's like $4 a pound. It's not cheap. You know, you can get a good, you know, you can make money back to basically buy your feed. Hmm. So it seems like if somebody did want to do this in any way commercially, that the way to go would be with large-scale meat production. See, where I was thinking that since you were breeding for show and for the pet trade, that there might actually be some money to be made there. You can if you are really, really diligent. Okay. Um, I'm I'm a little I enjoy my fuzzy rabbits and while they are not pets they are 
livestock. I'm not, I'm not super aggressive in selling them for a lot more. I'm probably could, but I also love selling them to you know little 4-H and FFA kids and helping them get started in something that I'm very passionate about. That you know. When I was 13, I was very, very shy, and I could never have done what I'm doing here today. You know, rabbits taught me a lot of things. You know, they taught me how to have confidence in myself, how to make tough decisions, how to lose with grace, how to win with grace, and how to have a really good time doing something you love. Very cool. Okay, well, that's that's good to know. And、uh, Rebecca, I appreciate you being with us on the show today. Oh, not a problem. I'm glad that I could be here and help out. All right, folks. And with that, this has、uh, been Jack Spearco today, along with Rebecca Colvin, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares. They're living 